and welcome to InsureTech Insider, episode 100. My name is David Breer, and in today's episode, what we're going to be doing, we're going to be revisiting some of our favorite moments in insurance since we started this podcast way back in 2017, all the way through to today. As always, I'm not alone, but I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests. First up, Nigel Walsh, Managing Director Insurance at Google. How are you doing, Nigel? I am googly. Can I say that? I'm very well. I'm enjoying the sunshine. It is 29. Sarah and I always talk about the sunshine. It's a heat wave and tomorrow it rains. It's bizarre, isn't it? I can't quite get it right. Yesterday I was sweating in my home office. Today I'm freezing in the office. So it's like, <laughs> just can't get it right. I have to uh, manage my, my diary and my dress code accordingly to what's happening outside right now. It's kind of bizarre. But uh, anyway, Nigel, great to see you. Uh, joining us, we've got Benjamin Enser, who is the Director of Research at 11FS. How are you doing, Benjamin? Hello, David. I'm really, really well. I've uh, made the mistake you made yesterday, so I'm a little bit hot in my home office because as Nigel said, we're finally getting three days of good weather just as the British schools went back. It's annoying, isn't it? I feel like in the 11FS office, we need a selection of uh, like blankets and, uh, you know, throwware of some description. So uh, swag. we'll have to get some swag. Yeah. Well, just just nice thick jumpers, something. And, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Somebody who definitely would have appreciated a, a nice thick jumper occasionally in the 11FS office. Last, but by no means least, making a very welcome return to the podcast. We've got Sarah Kachansky, Strategic Insights at Founders Factory. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm doing very well. And I am, in fact, wearing a sweatshirt because I'm inside an office and I came prepared because I'm too long in the tooth to go into an office in the summer without a jumper. In fact, to answer your question, we used to have hoodies in the back of our chairs, at least two each in some of our offices in the olden days. There you go. Got to, got to wear those wear those layers. That's the trick to it, isn't it? Just just when you thought you'd get out of 11FS Fintech Insider, InsureTech Insider podcast, right? You're, you're dragged back in, aren't you? Well, well, yeah, I have to say that the producers did invite me to come on the show before my last day. Um, and then once I'd gone, I was like, do you still want me to do it? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. So uh, can't get rid of me. Somebody who commits to diary is always a good thing, isn't it? But uh, anyway, thank you very much for joining us, everybody. I, I guess we probably should get on. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, and maybe if we start the conversation by talking about 2017. In summary, 2017 was a pretty damn big year for insurance. It brought on the first wave of the established insurtechs and various different partnerships that we're having. Uh, massive cost savers in claims, operations, and customer acquisition across the board. Already a major trend at the time gained even more importance in 2017 was everything about insurtech, which was a bloody good time to start a podcast, if uh, if I do say so uh, myself. Um, 2017 also gave insurance a new face on digital transformation and a lot of engagement around innovation as well. So maybe if we just dive in. For me, I mean, there's so many things that happened uh, to really start us doing this podcast in the, in the first place. Nigel, Sarah, I mean, I mean, we were inundated with conversations actually starting on Fintech Insider with, hey, there's another insurance thing. Hey, there's another insurance thing. But I guess 2017 was a good place to start. But it feels like the momentum for InsurTech was even further back than that. I don't know, Nigel, do you want to start us on that? It, it feels like we jumped on the bandwagon, but the bandwagon had started a long time before. I was going to say, I'm not sure when Fintech Insider started. And I, know, I know you and I have been speaking about let's go do something together for quite a while. I think if I go back to some of the CB Insights reports or Deloitte or Capgemini or whoever was writing about it at the time, I think the insured tech numbers have been looked at from around 2014. So 17 was probably... Uh, into the early stage of the hype cycle, if I'm allowed to use the Gartner words here, of uh, your former folks. 
But it feels like 17 was kind of like the, when it started to get into the, oh, this is going to get exciting. It was still behind fintech. Though. I'm not sure when fintech inside of started. Uh, we started it just uh, middle of 2016, actually. So yeah, okay. not much, not much beyond that. But but as you say, the the investments and the momentum and and really the headlines that were starting to be grabbed. I mean, insurance really did start to sort of flourish at that point. I mean, Sarah, I know uh, insurance has always been very close to your heart, not just for a uh, not not just for the the fun you have on a podcast, but actually it's something that's really close to the things that you want to see happening in the industry. Obviously the insurance companies had uh, we've seen a similar cycle in fintech the insurance companies had a lot of problems and then hey presto five six years later well capitalized startups pop up to fix a lot of those problems right yeah and no, absolutely i i um, agree with nigel that you know insurance was and probably still is behind some of the other sectors of, of financial services um but and, and so we'd already seen some of the big the big kind of fintechs had already made a splash in a name by by this point and then the new the insurtechs were coming to the fore i mean i think i, I just looked it up to be to be doubly sure but i think this was the year in which lemonade like really started to, to be heard of and, and to make its name i mean it was i was just checking that because i was like have I, I i can't remember that far back um i blame the pandemic um but yeah no it was it was it was names like that and eye-catching brands and i think the thing that that really caught my eye because obviously i was i was working over at business insider when we started doing this but um was the, the the way that it seemed to be filling a hole that really helped people, you know, in a way that some of the other areas of, of financial services had already done, but it seemed to be so needed, particularly among, you know, the underserved demographics across the board. Mm. It's fascinating. There was one uh, super interesting quote here back from 2017. It's funny, isn't it? 2017 seems like such a long period of time ago. Like you say, it uh, it feels like uh, a time capsule from when we were children. It seems quite bizarre. But the relationships between insurers and insurtechs became much more intense, apparently, according to this quote in, in 2017. Uh, insurers look for ways to learn much more from insurtechs that they're actually investing in, whether it's about specific capabilities or concrete instruments that they can use in the organization or whether it's just about culture at insurtechs and the ways that they're actually working. I mean, to your point, not only did the the insurtechs start to gain more traction in terms of them being seen to being successful in that space. But Benjamin, I, I, I guess the big incumbent insurance companies started to look at, well, how are these guys getting momentum and really what is it that they're doing that's creating that success, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it was about 2017, the big insurance companies like AXA and Allianz started to really start taking insurtech seriously. They started investing significant amounts of money in some startups and collaborating with startups and also setting up their own operations in areas like data analytics. So that's when you really started to get it take off that combination of, as Sarah said, companies like Lemonade, Root Insurance, Next Insurance, there's a whole group of US insurance insurtechs that came onto the scene. And then also suddenly you've got a whole bunch of sort of vendors, emerging insurtech vendors with super interesting AI and other technologies starting to come onto the scene. And suddenly you've got some momentum after some years of not that much happening and looking at fintech and seeing all this amazing stuff and saying, where are the insurtechs? And then suddenly a whole load came to the market. Mm. Nigel, why why did it take so long? Like, why do you think it took so long for for that response? Because I don't mean I don't necessarily mean the response of the uh, the big incumbents sort of waking up to the the insurtechs, but insurance more broadly has been quite slow to 
to adopt digital beyond you know websites distributing products that have existed for a while uh, what is what do you think has been the inhibitor it's a, it's an interesting one and you say slow i mean here we are 4 years later and i still feel we're slow and having shifted my focus from the european market to the us market i genuinely feel like sometimes i've gone back 5 or 10 years in time let's not forget how advanced and mature the uk market is or the european market at digital disruption, at aggregators and all that sort of stuff, they don't really exist in North America today. It's still your agent or IFA. And if your IFA is your independent financial advisor of old, of, you know, go back umpteen years, there's 130,000 in the UK. Now there's about 10,000 or 15,000. I feel like that's happening in North America. So I still think the whole engagement with your insurer, what you do, I, I don't think the narrative has changed too much since 2017. Back then, we were talking to Phoebe at Broly, since acquired by DLG. We were talking at InsureTech Connect for the first time with Instander and Risk Genius and a bunch of others. All those companies are still going and have either been since acquired or growing in different ways. Is what they're doing today any different to what they're doing four years ago? I don't actually think so. And that then answers your question in a actually we're still adopting this stuff quite slowly so i do wonder what that aha moment is for us to get a move on and just go adopt it at pace and at scale mm. it's interesting i know sarah this is a quote that you'll remember from simon taylor back i think it was focused on fintech rather than insuretech at the time but it did feel back in 2017 it was like teenage sex everybody was talking about it and nobody was doing it right but now you know hopefully as we go through the years we will see more people doing it i'm not sure that that was the really the quote that i was going for but on that note we probably better leave 2017 behind and move forward into 2018 nigel do you want to pick up from where we left off yeah i i'd love to thanks for the uh careful hand over there a year into the relationship what's happening so 2018 brought us more data automation and insight whilst wait for it blockchain and smart contracts were still on the horizon IoT sensors and wearables, connected home devices and car telematics were spitting out massive amounts of information, but insurers were not yet using data to its full potential for improving customer experience, analyzing risk and shifting behaviors to avoid exposure. So let's jump into this, because actually I think this could equally say 2021, never mind 2018. Um, let's start with blockchain and smart contracts still on the horizon. I actually feel like I should pause there and go, have we actually moved forward or actually have we moved backwards entirely? Sarah, you look like you were itching to jump in. So let me start with you. <laughs> um, I think we have moved forward, particularly on the smart contracts point. I'm just thinking about um, some of the stuff I've been looking at recently, particularly with sort of insurance. I mean, it's, it's quite niche, but over in the DeFi space and, and how products and services are being built, you know, literally using smart contracts because it's the only way for for insurance to be provided when you're looking at that kind of organizations of that kind if you will um, and I think we've also seen quite a lot of movement on the blockchain side within some of the larger insurers that said when I say quite a lot of movement it's a case of me seeing four or five stories a year as opposed to one or two so you know it depends how you measure it um, but I, I do think that that what's happened now is that we're seeing more blockchain slash smart contract um, solutions that are meeting actual needs as opposed to solutions wandering around looking for a problem, which when we were back in 2017, 2018, people would go, I've got a thing. And people would be like, great, why? What do we do with that? Whereas now people will go, I've solved a thing. It just so happens to be with this technology. I like that. And actually, it's 
by pure coincidence, I had a guy speak to me today who's now at Google with me that used to work for or work with B3i. And I'm sitting there going, I've not heard blockchain in God knows how many months, it feels like, and all of a sudden twice in a day. Ben, I wonder if you have you got a view of how it's different, I guess, between insurance and banking. Have they moved on at the same sort of pace? Is banking way off there and doing loads of stuff on blockchain or has that died down as well? I think the, the issue, the challenge for, for blockchain has always been that it's not about the technology so much as a lot of the underlying legal contracts and building the relationships and everything else. So if we've seen a bit more progress in, in banking, it's not vastly greater than insurance. And I think, you know, to the point Sarah was making, you know, we had a lot of solutions looking for problems. Um, I think people are gradually figuring out what blockchain is really strong for in banking as in insurance. But I don't think the banking industry is years ahead of insurance in its use of blockchain. D- David, one for you. Do you think the industry, I'm, I'm gonna, I was going to say the insurance industry, but do you think the industry in general understood what this actually could do, whether we're talking about distributed ledger, blockchain or smart contracts? Because some of them are easier to explain than others. And it feels like some is infrastructure and some is execution. Have you got a view on on how the industries are actually viewing those two things right now? Yeah, I mean, if we if we look back, I mean, 2018, we were still talking about crypto kitties and, you know, blockchain or distributed ledger technology revolutionizing everything. And I, I think it was a really I think it was a really interesting moment for insurance and for banking, which enough people weren't putting up their hands and actually going, what the hell does all of this stuff mean? Because, you know, you saw everybody standing up at conferences saying it would revolutionize everything. And really what we've done over the period since that, you know, 2018 till now is is probably rightly dispel a lo- lot of those myths. You know, we've gone from crypto kitties to NFTs, haven't we? So, you know, not owning a cat to not owning some trainers, like doesn't seem like a lot of progression to me. But, but equally, we have said, and to Sarah's point, we've said, you know, programmable technology, programmable capability, the sort of progressive, you know, creation of digital services in that sense that really take advantage of uh, today's technology makes a great deal of sense. And whether that's, you know, smart contracts looking things or whether it's distributed, you know, ledger technology things, we almost don't care, really. I think there was a lot of people making a lot of money in 2018 out of this stuff uh, in one format or another. Um, but I think a lot of it turned out to be Emperor's New Clothes. It's it's a nice way to finish it, actually. And my, my divine realisation on blockchain, I, I do think it will have a fundamental infrastructure change for our broader financial services industry over the coming decades in the same way that Mainframe did. But my divine realisation was almost the you didn't need blockchain to have a smart contract. And a good example of that was Berkshire Hathaway's Travel Protect product that automatically paid out on cancellation or whatever else based on other oracles of data. I was just about to say the huge boom we've seen in parametric insurance and, and parametric providers, a lot of that, you know, I think if we'd looked at that three or four years ago, it would have been smart contracts, blockchain. And now, as you say, it's, it's an index triggered by, by a data source that's hit. And that's the ideal, isn't it? Actually, you know, insurance isn't that complex, is it? You know, we've got a, a buy process, we've got a claims process. And if the claims process can become, you know, really automated through using, you know, executable services, that makes a huge amount of sense, doesn't it, for this industry that spends, you know, billions of pounds trying to process claims. Um, sometimes, I, I guess what it takes, Nigel, is is somebody 
leaping beyond just slightly improving the process that they've got to to looking at a very different solution. And whether that's smart contracts or whether it's, I don't know, uh, you know, a plethora of other technological solutions that they can use, it's making it better. That counts. I think the, the net net for me there, though, as we've all come to the conclusion is actually whilst blockchain hasn't gone as fast as we all thought or predicted it might do, it gave birth to Parametric, which is actually flying along. And everyone now understands it. The balance there, of course, is if we do lots of stuff in an automated fashion, we then still lose the engagement that the insurance industry is crying out for. The It's a lovely segue actually into the next piece around automation and insight. So one of the predictions for um, automation and insight in 2018 was that data-driven transformation is claims automation, where an estimated $11 billion a year could be saved in the healthcare industry alone. The use of automation in all areas of insurance value chain will multiply efficiencies. Now, I actually think the $11 billion number is grossly underestimated given some of the things that are going on and some of the automation companies that have sprung up, whether it's Automation Anywhere or Blue Prism or any of these sorts of organizations, Ben, what's your what's your take on automation in insurance or automation in, in FS more broadly? I think this has been huge. I think we've seen so many uh, innovations in, particularly in the claims process, of using digital technologies to simplify and automate the process. You know, whether it's automated uh, loss adjusting, whether it's um, you know getting customers to scan picture, you know, to take pictures of scenes, whether it's you know starting to use drones and so on to assess property risks. There's a huge opportunity um, for various forms of automation. I mean, the insurance industry has always been about data. Computers are really good at data. They're really good at spotting, pat- well, at cert- spotting certain types of patterns. So we've seen massive improvement in sort of underwriting quality, in claims resolution and so on, with huge cost savings. Because, you know, this is an industry that still has tons and tons of paper. You know, it was only, what was it, 10 years ago that Lloyds of London finally closed. You know, they had this huge office somewhere in Kent, you know, with hordes of paper. Um, you know, this was a paper-based industry 20 years ago. And now, as you bring that into electronic records, suddenly you can automate all sorts of processes. So I think this has been huge, by contrast to blockchain, which I don't think has had much impact on the industry. Sarah, is this, is this us cheating and getting to a, a stage of actually let's automate rather than innovate or change? I think automating allows for innovation and change. I think once you start automating some of the processes that, to Benjamin's point, are very time consuming, paper heavy, very manual, you free up some of the people who know the insurance industry best to use their creativity and their brains and their knowledge and their experience to start tackling some of the the more thorny problems and the problems that will actually allow the industry as a whole to to move forward and, and do what it needs to do, which is serve its customers better. I think it is a challenge, isn't it, though, to a certain degree. I think we I think we all around this table probably would have seen organizations that have dressed up evolution like revolution and actually you know sometimes rpa can get a uh, get organizations into a difficult place where they they almost then can't justify doing the leap that they've uh, almost papered over a lot of the cracks and i think particularly when you start looking at data it's a real messy beast when you get down into the problems of why why we can't do the things in the way that we want to do them and it seems like an easy thing to do just to paper over some of those cracks but you know it definitely can lead to um, you know further problems down the line and um, definitely in two or three organizations I've seen uh, I've seen people do it but again I think it maybe comes back to the point Benjamin you and Sarah were making which is you know if you can take that low-hanging fruit and Sarah to your point free up the people to actually do the the strategic alongside the tactics then it makes a great deal of sense 
No, I, I, I'm with you there. And I do still worry three years on about revolution and evolution. Um, well, look, with that, that was 2018. Sarah, over to you for 2019. Thank you, Nigel. Well, um, this links quite nicely because they, uh, the thing we saw an awful lot of in 2019 was a boom in AI and artificial intelligence, or at least I will say a boom in me getting press releases mentioning AI and artificial intelligence. You know, that's a little unfair. There were a lot of companies that really were trying to make the most out of analytics. There was a greater focus on cybersecurity as well um, as, of, as of this point in time. And yeah, companies were across, you know, 2018, 2019, more insurance and insure tech companies were finding ways to actually utilize proper artificial intelligence. Um, it's a quote here from Insurance Thought Leadership, which predicted that in 2019, companies will complement a significant part of their structured data decision making with AI data analysis and decision making. Um, so I don't know. Do, do we think that that actually, I mean, which side of this do we come down on? Was there a greater use of AI or was there a greater use of talking about AI? And when people said, yeah, we're using AI, did they mean RPA? Because I think that's what, you know, that was what we struggled to unpick uh, as people who are watching the industry and trying to see what people were actually doing under the hood. I don't know, Benjamin, you you and I have, have similar outlooks and similar perspectives on things, or certainly we have similar ways of looking at things. So what was your thoughts? I think, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting debate whether robotic process automation is or isn't a form of artificial intelligence. I think at some level it is, but it's a, it's a relatively basic um, form. I think where you are seeing artificial intelligence is sometimes in other areas. You know, you mentioned Lemonade earlier, Sarah. You know, uh, to me, Lemonade is fascinating because of the way it's using chatbots. Now, chatbots are not perfect. We've all had bad experiences with chatbots. But that sort of use of artificial intelligence um, starts to create better customer experiences or the types of artificial intelligence like machine, um, machine reading and natural language understanding where you're getting machines to ingest vast quantities of data. You know, there are insurance companies that have gone back and got sort of historical disease records and so on to try and understand disease patterns better so that they can build more, uh, more intelligent predictive models. You've got companies uh, like Allstate Try, uh, with its Arity subsidiary trying to build um, businesses out of their data models that can predict uh, certain types of risk event and loss event. So I actually think, yes, we've seen a lot of uses of artificial intelligence that go well beyond robotic process automation. And, and do we think that a, a large part of that is actually that insurers or, or some insurers and insurtechs got their act together on their data? Because a lot of the problems we had with the early conversations around AI were all these companies selling AI solutions or companies were trying to implement AI solutions. But actually, the companies they were selling them to or the, the companies that were trying to implement them, their data was literally in boxes of paper, as you said, Benjamin. So there was no point in having an AI specialist until you'd cleaned up your data. Um, I don't know, Nigel, does that chime with what, what you saw? Do you think that... When it took us a while to get going on this because first of all we had to solve the problem of, of, of what the data what data we had and where it was and what it actually said i think you're spot on and actually even to this day i still think we're solving the problem in silos so you'll go to a large um multi-line carrier and they'll go solve it for a particular line of business in a particular country but they're not going to solve it en masse so everyone to me talked about being customer centric what they actually meant was we're, we're product line of business centric and we can solve one thing let's go do some cool exciting stuff in marine or could do some cool exciting stuff in commercial property but god forbid you'll be a customer across multiple lines and try and do it in two different ways i just don't think we're geared up that way because they're solving the data issues function by function line of business by line of business not customer in and it's a, it's a tough challenge right when you look at the the distributed market across carrier reinsurer broker customer etc it's it's complicated 
but it's not been solved yet. So, so I mean, I guess it's it's complicated. It's not been solved yet. Do we think that that is part of what is still holding back this idea of personalization? Because I think we've been talking about the idea of personalization insurance as the holy grail for a really long time. Like, I want a policy for me, not a policy for a person in this box who fits this demographic, who has, you know, wants this particular type of insurance. You know, is, is that where we go next? Is that where I can really help, I suppose, both insurance companies and insurtechs stand out and kind of finally meet meet that need. David, what are your what are your thoughts on AI and personalization? Um, I'd say on the AI side of things, I mean, a lot of startups were trying to get funding. You know, I think that's why we heard it a lot. And, and Sarah, you know, many, many of the places that were sending you, uh, you know, press releases, I, I think were, you know, hey, we've raised some money or we're trying to raise some money and we're doing a thing in AI, which sort of makes sense. Very similar to the DLT thing, right? AI is, um, you know, up there with the most bastardized terms and, and least understood from a actually what does that mean you know because to benjamin to your point uh, a macro in excel somebody's going to claim is some sort of narrow ai to solve a you know mathematical equation of some description you know what i mean so um so i think on, on that side of things i think it's no wonder we saw it because if it works and one person sees it working 10 other people are going to try and do it to, to get to where they need to get to and there was lots of funds you know if we kind of think back to uh, this period there was a lot of funds really getting going in earnest in terms of money sloshing around the industry um i think when it comes to personalization i think this is this is almost that you know it's innovators dilemma playing out isn't it the big organizations can't really do this because they can't get all of the data sets together or everybody to agree in the way in which they want to make it happen so struggle to innovate in this space but the startups i guess struggle to gain access to the levels of data that they would need to to do this in any real meaningful way at this stage so you know i think this was the beginning of that journey to a certain degree but as we sort of see in the later years then you know it plays out in different ways for different organizations at different levels of scale but I, I do wonder if the the limitation in big organizations to move to a more personalized insurance product is less one about ability to do it and more one about the monetization of it. You know, arguably, the insurance industry is still really held back by the way in which it monetizes. You know, its business model is predicated on hoping you don't use the product. And actually, that doesn't sit particularly well with an industry that's moving much more towards engagement and uh, and, and people engaging with a brand and engaging with a product and a service on a, a very regular basis. So I think as, as that model shifts, you'll start to see more people feeling more comfortable with those types of monetizations as well. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's this idea that we're moving towards now, which is personalization, this protection rather than cure or kind of, you know, we'll, we'll stop something happening rather than pay out when it happens. And that's the way that you get this... You, you kind of get this personalization because you feel like you're actually being cared for and actually the things they're trying to prevent happening are things that are specific to your house, to your home, to your family. Um, and, and, you know, AI can, can can really, really help there. I was going to jump in with one thing. I think, that, I think that whole shift to value-added service or the thing that you actually want in the first place, we've talked about it a lot, it almost takes you through to today's buzzword. If If digital was five years ago and AI was three years ago, today's one is is embedded finance or embedded insurance. We've talked about it a lot for the last year or so. What, what you've just described to me is actually falling in love with the thing that we really want, living longer, being healthier, preventing going down a bad road or whatever else that happens to be underpinned by a product if you need it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that to answer David's point, that's that's how you get to monetization in the future. But we are now going to take a quick break and we'll be back very shortly. 
Introducing the Truly Digital Manifesto. If you're not truly digital already, well, you're missing out on a massive opportunity. Faster processes, more customer value, and higher revenues. It's not the future. It's already happening. So how do you measure up? Head over to trulydigital.elevenfs.com to see what it really means to be truly digital. Looking to sharpen your competitive edge when it comes to design? Join hundreds of subscribers using 11FS Pulse to solve their users' problems and get to market faster. Discover over 4,000 user journeys from global brands like Revolut, Curve, and Soldo, and learn how to design winning customer propositions with our expert analysis. Get started today by visiting bit.ly forward slash get a pulse demo. All right, welcome back. Let's get on with the show. Uh, Benjamin, over to you. Thank you, Sarah. So time to take a look at 2020. So 2020 started off with, you know, continuation of the innovation in the insurance sector, adoption of more digital technologies for cost efficiency to try and improve customer experiences and so on. But then, of course, suddenly there's this huge new challenge of COVID-19 hitting the industry. You know, <laughs> and you sort of don't want to talk about it again, but we can't talk about 2020 without talking about COVID-19 and how it affected the insurance industry and the insure tech industry during the, the pandemic. So let's start with, do we think the uh, the pandemic changed the insurance landscape for, for good? Uh, was it a good thing for, for the industry that it, that it came along in a, in a funny sort of way? Was there a silver lining in, in the pandemic for the insurance industry? I mean, I reckon a lot of insurance companies were, I mean, particularly if you're in healthcare, were freaking out quite early on, I imagine, in terms of that sense. But definitely, I'd, I'd say, and this is true, I think, across financial services as a whole, it's been a, it's been an accelerant, really, for, uh, and is it in a good way? Is it in a bad way? It showed the fragility in many systems that actually now people are really finally sort of stepping into to address, whether that's, you know, core infrastructure systems or you know working from home policies like everything has been up for grabs hasn't it so uh, so yeah i would say you know thinnest of silver linings but um, but definitely it's been an accelerant for change uh, in terms of covid i can't believe before this i haven't realized covid19 was 2020 like they really should have branded that better and it been covid20 we would have uh, all remembered it in 30 years when it was wouldn't it seems there was a bit of a debate about where it originated but let's not go there <laughs> or when and where it originated Nigel, what are your thoughts on 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 the the impact of it? I'm the same, actually. The the uh, David's touched on the work from home piece, and actually, I think the the move to flexibility and the move to be digital businesses, whether that's digitized or or truly digital businesses, is really interesting. And from our earlier conversations about automation and stuff, just made sure everyone had to put things in place to make sure you could work not in an office. Now, you go back to the most classic insurers of choice, which is Lloyd's of London, where slips were walked around from box to box. The adoption of uh, electronic placement has gone through the roof and they were trying for years to get electronic placement working. And now all of a sudden there's no other choice but to use it. So actually, I think it's been a brilliant accelerant in things like that, without which we'd still be here trying to get, you know, single digit percentages up because we all wanted to go into the Lloyd's building and walk a piece of paper around. Now we've got there, we can never go back. So I think that's good. The other, the other thing I think that's been a really strong test, of course, and I'm sure you'll come on to as well, is the, the business interruption case. And this has come up for many reasons, whether it's cyber or others previously, about what is covered and what is not covered, whether you've got non-denial of access to policies and whether you've got infectious diseases or not. 
But this put the industry on watch in two ways. Number one, we now have a good or better understanding of what's in our policy. And number two, none of us are ever going to do everything ever again without actually checking whether COVID is covered for or not. None of us are going to book a travel policy without knowing whether or not we're covered for COVID in the event of catching something, getting repatriated home, or the healthcare system in the country that we actually choose to visit or whatever else. So it has helped an industry that's not had a good reputation allow people to dig into it a bit further and be clearer on what we do and what we don't do. Sarah, we can either jump into the business interruption insurance uh, sort of pothole, or, or we can hear your thoughts on um, 2020 and whether there were any silver linings for the insurance industry. I mean, I think we've, we've kind of covered the silver linings bit. I think it is, it is the acceleration towards digital um, and, and changing the way businesses operate. I, I will say, though, that I am going to be intrigued to see how many businesses continue to have that mindset and how many businesses go, OK, great, wonderful, you're all back in the office now. Thanks very much. That was fab. And we end up with a load of people left behind and a load of people leaving the workforce. We've already seen it. You know, people who have found that their lives were much better under kind of in terms of their work life balance was much better. Uh, over the last 18 months quitting their jobs because their companies are trying to force them back and they're like I don't want to go back and a pay rise are you covering my commute isn't worth it I want to spend more time with my children I want to go for longer walks I want to you know whatever that is so I think um, I think I really want I really hope that stays the same but that's something that I really want to see you know how it progresses and I think that also applies to the business interruption case I think Nigel and I talked about this quite a lot but theoretically yes it should give people a better understanding of what's in their policies or, or kind of a greater willingness to, to, to look into that and, 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 and make sure they understand what they're buying and it should also give insurers the imperative to be clearer in what they're selling but I'm not sure that we've seen that really happen yet um, I think that, you know, apart from a small a small section of people who were negatively affected, a lot of other people just want to go on holiday. You know, a lot of small businesses have gone the other way and gone, you know what, there's no point having insurance because it doesn't pay out anyway, so we're not going to bother. So, you know, we've seen the number of SMEs who are underinsured or uninsured actually increase because their, their response has been, well, it doesn't cover us anyway, so what's the point? And we're already strapped for cash. So, you know, whilst there are silver linings, I'm really hoping that those silver linings continue to progress and outweigh some of the more negative things we saw. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. You, you also made a really interesting point about the sort of workforce and, and how different companies are responding differently to realising that a lot of certain white collar work can be done from home. And clearly there's going to be a competition between employers as some companies are very flexible towards their employees and others perhaps insist on employees coming back in. But what about the insurance agents and the insurance brokers? Because we started this conversation talking about why the insurance industry is a bit slow to embrace um, digital and become truly digital. And clearly one of those reasons is channel conflict with insurance agents and brokers playing such a big role in distribution all around the world. Nigel or perhaps David, what, what are your thoughts on the impact of the pandemic and working from home on, on brokers and agents and their future? Um, I think there's a real split, though, there, because, you know, brokers don't necessarily imply an older company. I mean, actually, if you look at something, and I know this is sort of straying into to fintech, but if you look at somebody like Habito, you know, Habito are really are a broker model. They've just worked rem and they work remotely all of the time. I think it's it's all, the devil's always in the detail in terms of how you do these things rather than what you do in the first place. I think it's a really interesting point whether this this period has uh, had a disproportionate impact on insurtech startups versus the big incumbent organizations, though, because, you know, has it been harder to, you know, gain 
attention of customers and the industry more broadly in this period for insurtech startups and obviously you know we've seen a, a number of insurtechs disappear over this period because of their inability to to get that market traction that arguably you know if they're a year ahead or a year after they they may be able to do i think one thing is definitely sure is uh, a whole stack of money can get you through uh, uh, many a problem uh, and it turns out a pandemic uh, you know a, a cash flow uh, a sizable sort of base to kind of go after really really helps doesn't it definitely I do think, Ben, the the difference here is very much driven geographically. So some countries rely more heavily on the human coming around to look at your property or your car or your asset that you want covered or whatever else. You go to Asia and actually micro-insurance or, or developing countries and micro-insurance, again, hasn't yet necessarily got the digital things that we always want or we talk about. So ge- geography and culture has got a massive play in this. And then of course, line of business. And I think a lot of this will change as the commoditization, if that's a word, of some of these things just mean, why do I need someone to look at this? This is ridiculous. So actually we can remove some of the broker or distributor in some of these cases, but let's not forget the specialty these people bring. So I'm not saying or purporting for a minute that agents and brokers will disappear. I'm saying you'll call them like for, I just got a remortgage actually, and I use a broker because they have access to all the market, their experience, they tell me the hows and the whys, and it feels like I'm getting value for money. Whereas jumping on and buying insurance for a car that is a lump of metal that I care a lot less about is kind of moot to me. Fantastic. That wraps up 2020. Let's go back to David for 2021. Okie dokie. Uh, we're back in today, 2021. Um, it, this year has been uh, been a really interesting one. We've seen embedded insurance skyrocketed as the, the embedded trend sort of goes everywhere. Uh, everybody's getting funded. Uh, we got all the way through the, the show so far without mentioning e-scooters, but we're probably going to have to bring it up at this point. Please, both of you don't wince too much. They're very much taking over, even in Norwich, I should add. E-scooters are everywhere. Device protection is regularly being sold now with mobile phones and we're seeing a, a similar trend within the motor industry as well as we start to see car manufacturers partnering with insurance companies uh, and distributing at the the point of sale it's no longer just about shoes you can get car insurance with your car which is super super interesting so what does the future hold i mean what are we seeing trends wise uh, in 2021 uh, and where will we be going next um i guess considering all the uncertainty we saw in 2020 um it feels like there's quite a lot going on 2021 right the again the places where we saw sort of fragility within systems big insurance companies are really stepping into fixing those things and all of those gaps that are being left by those big insurance companies are being filled by insurtechs pretty quickly so sarah maybe starting with you i mean 2021 we've uh, i mean it's god damn it's september already isn't it we've gone gone, gone a long way through it but uh, it seems like the ins- the insurance industry as a whole is is really uh, skyrocketing at this point yeah i think we've seen um a lot of innovation sort of suddenly uh, sort of come explode into the public or, or even just the industry's awareness, actually. I think a lot of it's been happening under a hood for a while and it suddenly sort of started a, appearing everywhere. I think there's a couple of things linked to that. You know, one is um, 
uh, trends associated with insurance. So you mentioned e-scooters. You know, uh, well, you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about them. How dangerous are they? Are they bad for society? Are they bad for the environment, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. But all of that stuff comes up in the media, and the word insurance comes up with that. You talk about the crypto space. You know, huge interest in how do I insure my crypto assets because you know they're not insured anywhere else. So you know, the word insurance crops up there. And then I think the big one we can't ignore is the um, the funding. Because we, there's a there's so much money sloshing around at the moment across fintech, insurtech, and just tech in general. In fact, just startups. But there's there's so much capital out there, and and a good chunk of it has come to insurtech. And again, when that happens, that the mainstream media, the mainstream press, prick up their ears. They want you know there's some great stories in there. Um, the one that happened this week was Marshmallow. Uh, you know, Marshmallow, great business, uh, British business. Um, reach unicorn status and, and Nigel and I have been waiting a really long time for a British insurtech unicorn and we finally have one and I think that's a sign that um, you know yes there's a lot of money around but I think yes investors are starting to see the potential more and more of these companies and seeing where they can go um, and you know even if the rate of that investment slows over the next six months or over the next 12 months We've got a lot of really well-funded, really interesting, exciting companies now who are sitting on some money and have, you know, that opportunity to go and spend it and do something exciting with it. So, you know, as I said, even if the funding slows, hopefully the innovation and the exciting news won't. See, going from just talking about it to doing it. I said this earlier on in the show, see? Um, Benjamin, though, I mean, what do you what do you think? Are we, are we seeing a similar... Nigel pointed out a little bit earlier on in terms of if America is five years ahead of the UK market, actually is insurance five to 10 years behind the fintech market? Because the the similar dynamics that we're seeing playing out in terms of, you know, to Sarah's point and to Nigel's points, we're seeing, you know, insurtechs really have an industry impact now. The knock-on effect of that is big insurers having to respond and do more interesting things. I mean, it's inevitable we're going to see the big insurance companies start to do greenfield builds because they can't get a- away from their tech or the culture. I mean, is this just history repeating itself just in a, a different dynamic, do you think? Yeah, I think there's definitely an element of that because um, I think one of the drivers is actually consumers, customers. You know, we are less interested in insurance. So it's harder to get people to change their insurance behavior than to change their banking behavior. So you haven't quite got the same momentum. You know, you've had a generation of sort of younger consumers who've driven, let's say, the digital banks and so on. And so that's meant that it's been tougher for the some really great digital insurance startups to win customers. I think on the tech side, actually, it's been easier. And we've seen some some really interesting um, tech vendors with really interesting propositions making inroads. But yeah, I agree, David. I think you know the legacy systems that the big insurance companies have are, are going to really weigh some of them down. And what you're seeing is that thing with, with that cherry picking where new companies come in, uh, they're a little bit savvier and smarter about underwriting risk. They find new clever way, data sources and so on, particularly with embedded insurance, you know, where they're working with a partner that shows them all sorts of additional data about those customers' behavior. They come in, they pick off the interesting ones. The risk is that the legacy providers get stuck with all the high-risk people, all the high-risk businesses, and they don't realize it, and that gradually kills them. So, yeah, I think it's going to be super, super interesting as the big insurance companies realize, ooh, this could get sticky. Yeah. I mean, we talked a little bit about embedded insurance as well, Nigel. I mean, that's the really, I'd say if the if we had you know two words to describe this year, that would very much be uh, the, the sort of hot topic for everybody. We haven't all been able to get together and talk at conferences, have we? But that would definitely be the keynote everybody would be giving at this stage. Um, do you think that's a trend that will keep going? 
I think it will, and embedded finance, embedded insurance, Simon Torrance talked about the $3 trillion market opportunity for insurance in the space. It truly is fascinating. It will be, I don't want to say held back, it will be managed by regulation and treating customers fairly and being clear about what they're getting and what they're not getting. The regulation in the UK has already come out and said, hey, you've got to be careful about what you're selling on top of the product, limiting the profit that you can make in different places because people aren't using them. But I do think this gives people the opportunity to engage in different ways, especially if I link it back to one of the other topics you mentioned, especially as we get to the future of mobility. And dare I say, and Sarah and I will be cringing as I say this now, e-scooters will almost certainly be inevitable they're everywhere, as you said. Even this morning, I saw one this morning, some guy going along smoking a cigarette or an e-cigarette whilst on his scooter. And randomly, I thought about Sarah. I was laughing to myself at 6.30 going, this blimmin' idiot on the roads with no lights, smoking a cigarette on his e-scooter. He hasn't got insurance. It's illegal. You're a numpty. But fast forward, you know, X number of months or years, then, of course, I'm sure they will be legal and we will have insurance. I even mentioned it online the other day. I was in a store and I thought, surely... We don't sell handguns because they're illegal. So why are we selling e-scooters because they're illegal? Apart from that 0.5% of the people that actually have the space to actually ride around on their private property. But my point there is, get back to embedded, when you buy something like that, it should come embedded with the insurance for public liability or personal accident or, or, or. And that's the way you're going to get insurance embedded into the things that we want to go and do whether it's mobility or other or other assets mm. and does that pose do you think uh i mean an amazing opportunity but potentially a, a real existential threat to the big incumbent organizations you know we're seeing tesla's insurance business being you know uh, valued at a ridiculous level because they can distribute insurance in in that sense do you know is this really the the real big threat to big insurance companies is being cut out of that value chain because somebody can do distribution better than you can do manufacturing. It, so very quickly, it, I can't remember who, whoever the quote was. It, it isn't the quote something along the lines of, it's not the biggest that's to survive, it's the fastest or the most agile. A great example of a traditional 175-year-old carrier, Chubb, and what they've done with Chubb Studio, in essence takes all their know-how and expertise in underwriting, takes off the front end and allows you to plug it directly into distribution of the modern world. A great example there is they can plug straight into Revolut and are now providing insurance via the Revolut distribution and super app, but with Chubb Studio behind it. And you'll see lots of carrier, lots of traditional carriers that have scale and experience, not just at acquisition, but also service and uh, claim to actually engage that way. Because I think, the one thing distributed or embedded insurance solves is acquisition. It kind of misses the point or no one's really talking about, well, what happens at point of claim or point of service? And at that point, if you've got insurance from your car from one provider, your house from someone else, your scooter from someone else, what happens if it's a claim? And I think that bit is unsolved for so far. Well, yeah, I mean, so far what they do is they push you to the insurer. So you you buy your insurance from, you know, it comes with whatever the product is. You go to the person who sold you the product and they go, yeah, it's not a problem. You've got to go and speak to them over there. And then you've got to go through, you know, whatever system they've got and they don't have the relationship with you. To your point about relationships, your relationship is with the person who sold you your Peloton, Nigel. It's not with the person who insured your Peloton. So, you know, how do you how do you solve that problem? And I completely agree. I think that's going to be a huge a huge thing to come along with other products that are being embedded, the right products, the people who are buying, you know, 
buying them. And it also doesn't help with that sort of holistic point that you were making earlier, Sarah, about giving me holistic, personalized advice about all the risks that I face, either as a consumer or as a business. If I'm getting my insurance in bed with all the other things, nobody's giving me overall advice on, hang on, there's this massive cybersecurity risk that you haven't thought about that you need to think about or whatever it might be. Yeah, it is. It is very true. I mean, it's been an amazing year. It's not quite done yet. I'm sure there'll be a bunch of other things that happen in that sense. But but I do love I mean, I feel like Nigel's very much raised the raised the bar there. You know, it's usually uh, sort of 80s movies or pop culture references, but he dropped a Charles Darwin quote there. And I think that does very much sort of uh, summarize it. Right. It's not the uh, strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent. It's the ones most adaptable to change. And and very much the industry has been in a uh, a pretty heavy level of change, hasn't it? On that point, actually, we're going to be coming to the end of the show pretty soon. But what we want to do is try and take a couple of minutes just to revisit some of the real favorite points of actually what we've done with InsureTech Insider over the last couple of years. I mean, Nigel, do you want to start us off with this? No more Charles Darwin quotes, all right? I, I'll try not to. Thank you for giving me the, the Charles Darwin point. Um, I, I have so many. I mean, broad, broadly, the opportunities the show and the engagements provided me have been phenomenal. I've done so much learning over the years, meeting guests and having fun and arguing with Sarah over the years. It's been really good fun. One, one of my favorites is probably Oliver Ralph and some of the uh, the bloopers or crazy claims that we used to find that people actually called and claimed for. And I remember one Christmas we went through some of the, the mad ones over, over the years. There might have been a bottle of wine involved at the same time in an office somewhere. But uh, I always I always like hearing the wacky side of insurance as well because it's it gets a bad rep and I think it's a brilliant industry. Very, very true. Yeah, I remember that. That was quite entertaining. Uh, Sarah, what about you? What's uh, What's been one of your highlights? So I was trying to think about this earlier, and the thing that came straight to mind was um, interviewing Lou Smith. You know, we've had her on the podcast a couple of times. She's always she's always brilliant, but she still owes me a tour of Lloyd's. Is what came to my mind when I was trying to think about it. I need to I need to get in touch with her. I also think you know another episode that really came to mind was the one we did with the LGBT plus community because it was an it was such an important issue. We got such great speakers on to talk about it. So eloquently in a way that you know Nigel and I just weren't qualified to do um and then the final one that really I really enjoyed was we did at the end of 2020 and it was the predictions for 2021 and everybody on the panel was on my side when it came to cyclists and it was I was just finally finally with a group of people who didn't who didn't believe in cycling so that made me very very happy You've never been so happy have you and that's uh, it was it was good just for gloating rights if exactly. nothing else Be- Benjamin what about you well, of course, I've mostly been a listener, so um, it, I'm just enjoying being a host and, and being part of part of the conversations. Um, I think probably the thing I'm enjoying most so far is the way the producers always sneak in e-scooters um, to wind up Nigel and Sarah. It's a, it's a continual thing. You've just got to send them a GIF at this stage. It triggers them really, really quickly. Um, I, I think from from my perspective, if, in all honesty, in the same way as it was with, with Fintech Insider or the other things that we do, it's just lovely to hang out with and talk with friends about subject matter that everybody's so passionate about. So while there's not one specific episode where I'm like, this summarizes my life, just hanging out with friends and talking about something that we love, I think that's always the way to do it. And uh, on that note, sadly, it does wrap up episode 100 of InsureTech Insider. Again, let that settle in. 100 episodes of this. It's kind of crazy. Thank you so much for everybody for joining us. Um, Where can people learn a little bit about you, Sarah, and your new home? Well, you can still find me on Twitter at Sarah Kajanski, and it's probably easiest to contact me that way. Sounds good. Uh, Nigel, where can people find out more? Likewise, I'm on Twitter still having some fun, usually exercising and doing something crazy uh, at Nigel Walsh. Very, very good. Uh, Benjamin? Uh, So I'm on LinkedIn as Benjamin Ensor and I'm on 11fs.com. 
Very good. As for me, you can find me mostly lurking on LinkedIn these days. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, then subscribe to this podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review as it super duper helps us make it better and actually helps other people find the show really easily as well. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on pretty much every uh, social media platform at this stage. Just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider. Uh, And if you want to drop us an email, you can email us on podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. A hundred episodes. Who'd have thought it? Be back soon. See you later.